Well, good morning, everyone. It's really good to be with you. Um, thanks to the band for leading us in that time of praise. Uh, today, we conclude our series called Encountering Jesus. Uh, it's been to designed to address the needs of those who do not yet have a Christian faith. So once again, nearly everything I say this morning uh, will be directed towards those of you who are not Christians. You perhaps are an atheist or a Muslim or a Hindu uh, or a Buddhist. Perhaps you follow the teachings of Charles Russell or Joseph Smith. Whatever your beliefs, I want to give you a really warm and sincere welcome. We are delighted that you have joined with us today. Uh, I promise not to harangue you or to try to manipulate you. All I want to do is explain Orthodox Christian faith uh, from the biblical text so that you can make up your own mind. Now, the passage we consider today is the second half of John chapter 19. It describes the death of Jesus Christ. One of the most curious features of Christianity is its insistence that the death of Christ is the cornerstone on which everything else is built. You simply cannot understand Christianity until you grasp the significance of Jesus' death. Now, I know how odd and jarring that concept must be for some of the thoughtful non-Christians in the room. But I would ask you to, to be prepared for an intellectual shock. As we approach the text, be open to the possibility that this apparently grim story is in fact a profound insight into everything that is beautiful and valuable in life. You will see from my beautiful slide that the biblical text divides into four sections. John has given us three perspectives on the event which we call the cross of Christ. We begin with what we might call the unbeliever's view of the cross. Then we will gain an insight into Jesus' self-understanding for how he himself viewed his death. And then, as it were, John pans the camera back and gives us the Bible's explanation of the event. So let's get underway by reading John 19, verses 16 to 24, the first of our perspectives. John 19, and we'll break into the middle of verse 16. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. All four gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, describe the events surrounding the death of Christ. But John's account is curious. He chooses not to record a lot of the detail 
uh, that we find in other gospel records. There's no mention of Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross, no record of the words of the two criminals or the taunts flung at Christ by the religious rulers. Instead, John focuses on the actions of the Romans, the governor Pontius Pilate, and the four soldiers who formed the execution squad. And at first glance, he might be describing any execution because none of the supernatural signs described in Luke or Matthew are recorded here. No earthquakes, no mention of the three hours of darkness. At first, there seems to be no religious significance to the crucifixion at all. Well, we might say to ourselves, that's no surprise. In last week's study, we saw the collapse of the Jewish leader's religion. They had, remember, if you remember, they had set themselves up as the guardians of truth of their nation's unique role in God's plan of salvation. But in the end, they gave up their entire religious heritage to force Pilate to execute Jesus. We have no king but Caesar, they said. And the sheer wickedness of the religious heart had been exposed. We saw that the Jewish elite behind their flowing robes and their fine words were vindictive bullies motivated by envy and hatred. That's religion for you, an atheist might say. There's no point looking to religion to explain this scene because religion is just another way to gain power over other people. We have to strip away all that hokum and look at life rationally. And I'm going to suggest that the verses we've just read provide what we might call the atheist's explanation of the cross of Christ. First, we hear Pilate say, what I have written, I have written. By this stage, he is completely fed up with the religious elite. They were upset because the inscription he had put over the cross asserted that Jesus was king of the Jews, and the Jewish leaders wanted to relativize that, uh, but Pilate waved them away. What I have written, I have written. In other words, the decision has been made. It may have been right, it may have been wrong, but it could no longer be undone. And that perspective is perhaps the most common explanation of history. History, we're told, is the result of human decisions. Just think of the moment in 1944 when Dwight Eisenhower gave the go command for the D-Day landings. All the years of planning different scenarios, arguing over options, analyzing weather, weather patterns, all that debate was over. The decision had been made. And so thousands of ships crossed the channel. Every soldier crouched in the landing crafts knew that there was no going back. Eisenhower's command had been given. What he had written, he had written. Soldiers down through history have always been a little cynical about the grand plans created by their political masters. So in the next verses, we see another way of interpreting history. Imagine you were an observer at the cross. How might you have made sense of this terrible scene? Well, close your eyes and listen to the sounds. What would you have heard? Well, what you would have heard was the rattle of dice in a soldier's helmet. They were gambling. Is that the answer? At the bottom of reality, do we find nothing but chance? Was this young man dying because he was just unlucky? A victim of a game of thrones played out by the ruling elite? So in these first verses, we see how an unbeliever might explain the death of Christ. If you're an establishment figure, you'll explain it as a decision by a powerful politician. If you're a bit more cynical, you'll put it down to chance. But that is all there is. Everything boils down to power and chance. Let me pause there for a second. How do you explain history? And not just world history, but your own personal story. Think of the jumble of events and relationships that make up your life. 
Why did they unfold the way they did? Is your life ultimately driven by power and chance? In the arrogance of my youth, I naively believed that my own personal agency would forge my path through life. I wasn't nailed to a cross. I had the talent and freedom to carve out my own story. <laughs> that fiction didn't last very long. Perhaps your parents got divorced, or someone you love got very sick, or your savings got shredded by incompetent politicians. In other countries, people get thrown into prison on the whim of a political tyrant. And suddenly it becomes clear that if atheism is true, we are all at the mercy of power and chance. Let's now read verses 25 to 30. The Christians in the room will be conscious that we're standing on holy ground at this point because we're going to gain an insight into the Savior's self-understanding. How did Jesus view this terrible event? Verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his own home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had finished the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The first thing we notice is that the Lord Jesus is no hapless victim. We encounter the same calm, rational man that we saw last week. Even in the most terrible of circumstances, Jesus doesn't display a hint of self-pity. Although he is literally nailed to a Roman cross, he still remains calm and in control. This speaks volumes for his character, doesn't it? That in these moments of unspeakable agony, his deepest instinct is to look out for the welfare of others. It's very hard to translate the Greek word that our Bible renders here as woman. When Jesus says to Mary, woman, here is your son, that sounds a little abrupt, doesn't it? But the original word was deeply respectful. Uh, perhaps a, a century ago, a man might have said, dear lady, here is your son. You see, at this point in her life, Mary's loyalty to her eldest son had caused her other children to abandon her. She was in a uniquely vulnerable state. So with calm dignity, Jesus makes arrangement for his mother's welfare. These few verses highlight the moral beauty of love and kindness that shine brightly in the darkness of the surrounding brutality and hatred. Our Lord's care for Mary had an even deeper significance, of course. With amazing gentleness, he is reconfiguring his relationship with her. No longer will their relationship be governed purely by biology or maternal instincts. It's going to move to a deeper spiritual and eternal relationship. So it's no surprise that when we last see Mary in the opening chapters of the book of Acts, she is a leading member of the early church. She stands with her sons and daughters praising the risen Christ. Now I make that point in all gentleness to anyone in the room from a Roman Catholic background. Of course we honor Mary, the mother of the Lord. She was a spiritual and substantial woman who was handed an awesome responsibility. Her suffering was terrible. 
But she needed a savior like the rest of us. She tells us that herself. So it's simply unbiblical to elevate Mary to the position of a sinless demigod. There is one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. I was speaking to one of you after last week's study about the power of this story, even at the level of literature. It is brilliantly written. We've heard Pilate speak and watched him leave the stage. Then we heard from the soldiers, but they too seem to have moved from center stage. And finally, those who really loved and honored Christ have been prepared for his death. So now, in verses 28 to 30, the Savior is utterly alone. He speaks twice. The first statement is poignant and human. I thirst. The second, in the original language, is a single word, finished. If you've been with us for every study in this series, the idea of thirst will not be new to you. In John chapter 4, Jesus has engaged in conversation with a woman from Samaria. I think this was our first study, actually. And he has just asked her for a drink of water. And then he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So he's promising this jaded, cynical woman that the very life of God will come flowing into her life. The metaphor of living water as the very life of God is central in John's gospel. And Jesus quite clearly saw himself as the divine source of that life. In John chapter 7, we read, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of water, living water, will flow from within them. So all through his gospel, John has been portraying Jesus as the source of God's very own life. And yet now we hear Christ say, I thirst. There's clearly some sort of exchange going on here. In order for us to have eternal life, the very life of God, the Savior's life had to be poured out unto death. The whole point of believing in Christ, says John, is that by believing that we might have life in his name. Remember, a Christian is someone who has God's very own life. It is that life which allows moral qualities like love and kindness and patience to grow. It takes God's life to effect real change in us. But now we see what's really going on. It is this eternal life, God's very own life, which is being poured out. And somehow, mysteriously, that poured out life will be the life that can now flood the Christian soul. Now, that insight allows us to state the blindingly obvious. The cross of Christ is meaningless. It is irrelevant if Jesus Christ is a mere man. It is the life of God that is being self-consciously sacrificed here. As the prophet Isaiah said, he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I'm sure you'll have heard Christians say that on the cross, Jesus bore the punishment that was due to us for our sins. And when I was a child, I guess I have to be honest, I thought of Jesus as a sort of independent third party. 
Instead of punishing me, God punished Jesus. But deep down, even as a child, that idea made no sense to me. What possible good could come from punishing a third party? It made no sense. But remember, Christ is God the Son. So there are only two parties at the cross, you and God. There is no third party. At the cross, we see God take the punishment for our sin on himself. We're witnessing the self-substitution of God. It is the life of God that is being poured out here. And I hope you see the moral beauty of that idea. When someone sacrifices themselves for another person, we're seeing the deepest form of love. The lover gives himself for the beloved. Everyone in this room knows that we're morally culpable. We've hurt others. Our selfishness and pride have damaged other people. We feel guilty about that. And so our deepest instinct is to run away from God, to hide from him like a beetle scurrying away into the darkness when the garage light is switched on. There just seems to be no way to fix our relationship with God. Some religions, of course, offer a scheme of good works, but good works won't ever give us peace with God. And Christianity's strange answer to that problem is found in this terrible scene. Jesus had told Israel's foremost Bible teacher, a man called Nicodemus, how the problem of sin and guilt would be solved. Speaking of himself, he said, the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus was talking about being lifted up on the cross here. So just now, stand and look up at the Savior. See his parched lips. Hear him say, I thirst. And know that God is bearing the awesome weight of your sin. And he does it because he loves you. You are loved by God. It is that truth which can give us the courage to creep out of the darkness and stand in the light. And it's only when we're bathed in the light of God's love and goodness that we find the courage to confront our own sin. Perhaps you listen to me now, and you're thinking of a terrible sin from your own past. Maybe it was an act of betrayal, or you hurt someone so deeply that the relationship was destroyed. Well, hear Christ speak again. Finished, he cries out. Christ bore the wrath of God for every sin that has ever been or will be committed. He took responsibility for every sin in human history from the murder of Abel to the gas chambers of Auschwitz. And because God executed a righteous judgment on himself, he can now offer you a principled forgiveness. It seems to me that we have arrived at the core difference between Christianity and the religion of Islam. In Islamic thought, of course, Allah can forgive. One of his names is Allah the Merciful. But in Islamic thought, he forgives because he has the power to forgive. I would respectfully describe that position as a little naive. Forgiveness cannot be a product of power. It requires the reconciliation of love and justice. And that is precisely what we see at the cross of Christ. The cross is both the demonstration of God's justice and the demonstration of his love. It's only the cross which allows God to offer a principled forgiveness. Now, allow me to give you an illustration. Imagine that I repeatedly drive my car while under the influence of alcohol. 
I happen to live in the same street as you. You plead with me to stop drinking and driving. My children play outside on the street, you say to me. You're endangering their lives. Well, despite your repeated warnings, I consume a bottle of alcohol and get into my car. And I kill one of your children while I'm driving. Now, imagine that God decides to forgive me. How would you feel if he justified his action by saying, well, I have the power to forgive him. A God like that would be saying that your child's life had no value. A wicked action of mine destroyed something of real, perhaps incalculable value. So it would be unjust of God simply to wave a divine hand and let me off. My sin has to be atoned for. Forgiveness must not only be a loving action, it must be a just action. Well, you say, I can appreciate all that theory, but this is just the old religious game being played out again. All these explanations of Jesus' death are just elaborate ideas that have been built up on top of a historic accident that was Jesus' death. Now, that is a really powerful argument. In technical language, it's called post-rationalization, okay? Where something happens, and you then look back on that and rationalize it. I'm going to suggest John deals with that in our third section, so let's read verses 31 to 37. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies, so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. The critic Bart Ehrman uh, is a scholar who is no friend of Christianity. But he's a highly respected scholar. And he argues that no reputable scholar denies that Jesus died on the cross. About 150 years ago, the so-called swoon theory was popular. But today, no serious scholar, even the atheistic ones, support that idea. Jesus Christ died on the cross. And one of the pieces of evidence is found in the text we have just read. We're told that a soldier drove his spear up through Jesus' side and blood and water flowed out. Now, that medical fact can only be explained in one of two ways. Either the chest was so terribly damaged that uh, hemorrhagic fluid flowed out, or else the pericardium became ruptured. And either of those explanations is so catastrophic that death must have occurred. Perhaps the most interesting aspect of that section is that John quotes twice from the Old Testament. Now, so far in this talk, I have ignored the importance of the concept of scriptural quotations and writing. In the original language, the word for writing is the same as the word for scripture. So in actual fact, writing is the main theme of this, this uh, passage. We had pilots writing at the outset, I have written I, what I have written. And then there are four writings mentioned later on, and they are quotations from the Old Testament. We've encountered two of them already in verses 24 and 28. 
But the two quotations that are placed after Jesus' death occur in the bits we have just read, verses 36 and 37. The first is from the book of Exodus. It refers to the Passover lamb and how none of its bones were to be broken. And then the other one, the last quotation, is from Zechariah. And that refers to a time when the nation of Israel will realize with horror that they had rejected their own Messiah. In humility, they will repent of that sin, says Zechariah, when they look upon the one they pierced. So we have a quote from the beginning of the Old Testament and one from the end of the Old Testament. So how can John convince you that the Christian explanation of the cross is not some elaborate bit of post-rationalization. It's not a complex edifice built on top of a historical accident. Uh, I'm, I'm reusing this illustration. Forgive me, those of you who uh, know me well. I remember once watching a short YouTube video that explained how a key opens a specific lock. Think of a normal Yale key. When it's inserted into the lock, it's a regular shape uh, <clears throat> moves a set of tumblers into the only position that allows them to turn when the key is rotated. Now, that mechanism provides us with a good illustration of what's going on here. The four quotes from the Old Testament act a bit like the tumbler pins in the lock. We suddenly realize that every element of this scene has been written down centuries beforehand. As each prophecy gets fulfilled, it's like a tumbler pin clicking into place. And suddenly our minds are open to the astonishing truth. History is not the product of chance and power. History unfolds in accordance with the written word of God. John has deliberately taken a quote from the beginning of the Old Testament and then another from the end because I think he is arguing that the cross is the fulfillment of God's grand plan of redemption. It's an enormously powerful argument. The entire scheme was written down centuries before Christ was born. And as these last two tumbler pins fall into place, we see the cross as the fulfillment of a plan written down before it was enacted. So the charge of post-rationalization cannot stand. I find that such a comforting thought. This morning your mind may be reeling because of some terrible trial. Your life might even seem to have spiraled out of control. In moments like this, we can be tempted to wonder if we're at the mercy of chance or if we're just pawns in a game of chess played by the powerful. Well, look at the cross of Christ and know that it is not so. Your own life story and all of history unfolds in accordance with God's word. Your faith is no mere post-rationalization of stories you were taught as an infant. It rests upon the fulfillment of a plan written down centuries before it was executed. So some suffering Christian today, know this. Your life is located precisely in God's grand plan for the universe. He knows the end from the beginning. No wonder the Apostle Paul, when he summarizes the gospel, puts it like this. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Let's close our time together by reading the final section of the text, verses 38 to 42. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, 
but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 35 kilograms. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they led Jesus there. The two men we encounter in this little postscript were both highly respectable. Take Nicodemus, I mentioned him earlier. He was Israel's teacher, a member of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus had been sympathetic to Christ within the limits of his value system. And by that I mean uh, what Nicodemus thought was really valuable in life. He loved the praise of men. He loved to be admired. For him, being admired was an important and valuable thing in life. It's one of the big motivators in his career. So when he came to visit Jesus, he came at night because he was scared to lose the admiration of his colleagues in the Sanhedrin. And Joseph of Arimathea was a similar sort of character, very respectable, incredibly wealthy. He had clearly put a lot of effort into getting a nice tomb ready for his own burial. It cost a lot of money, that tomb. Situated where it was in a lovely garden, hewn out of hard rock. But posterity matters, he thought. The important thing was to be well-remembered after you've gone to the grave. So those were the, that's, what the, that's what their values were like. But the cross transformed those two men. I think, you know, they stood around the cross and watched that pitiless scene. They saw their erstwhile colleagues behave with unspeakable cruelty, and they wondered to themselves, why do I care what they think? What do I care about my place in society, my own posterity? As they stood at the foot of the cross, their entire value system was transformed. And so to the shock and disgust of the Sanhedrin, the two men take Jesus' body down from the cross and they wash it, they treat it with respect and dignity. Nicodemus gave up his love of being admired. Joseph gave up his ideas about posterity. Somehow those things didn't seem to matter in the light of the cross. In a few weeks' time, uh, when we get to Easter, we will conclude the story by considering the resurrection of Christ. But remember, this transformation of these two men happened before the resurrection. Joseph had no expectation that he would ever get his tomb back. It was Jesus' death which transformed the lives of these two men. And their story, I suggest, provides a roadmap for every non-Christian in the room. You must either turn away from the cross and dismiss it, or else it will transform you. In fact, the cross turns all our values upside down. Things we used to treat as valuable and important, things like success and being admired or being popular, we start to see those things as relatively unimportant. It takes the cross of Christ to show us what is real and noble and worthwhile in life. And it also takes the cross to show up what is false and shabby and meaningless. Thank you for your courteous attention. May you find the courage and intellectual honesty to confront the idols in your life, to face up to your sin. Remember that at the foot of the cross, you are bathed in the light of God's goodness and love. And so you can ask for a principled forgiveness. By believing in Jesus, you can have life in his name, the very life of God flowing through your life. 
If we can be of any help uh, to you in your journey of faith, please do speak to a Christian near you or come and speak to me after the service. But for now, we're going to sing a final hymn and then I shall close in prayer.